Today's um, Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. (laughs) Imagine standing for a whole sermon. That's next week. How good. Man, good to be back in the saddle this week. It's been four weeks since I've uh, stood with the scriptures open before our church and unpacked God's word to us. And so on a scale of one to rusty, I feel like an old bike left in the shed for five years' time. Um, And I just want to say that's great. You know? That'll become more clear as to why I think that as we unpack this last little stanza, last little line of the Lord's Prayer, the sixth clause, the the last ask that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. But um, before we jump into that, I just want to announce something. Um, We met together as a team on Monday, and that's the, the day that our staff team get together, we pray and we discuss things and we drink good coffee and what can we say, we're millennials, right? But on Monday we were talking about the impact that this prayer series has had on just us as a church and the team shared with me some awesome insights, just hearing words from the ground of how it's been for us to journey through this series and just some incredible testimony and story of people really enjoying walking through the Lord's Prayer and I think because of that, next week we had nothing in the preaching roster, we actually want to lean back in for one more week next week. Uh, And the way that we want to do that, sort of twofold. One, I'll be speaking again, and hopefully I'll have something to say on prayer. But um, the more concrete way we want to lean in next week is something that's been on our heart for a long time. Not just looking back to the past, but forward to the future, is this sense that we can't become the church that God wants us to be without prayer. And without this like rhythmic enjoyment of prayer, and this contending moving forward in prayer, and this marching forward on our knees for the glory of God in our city. And so, We just want to open up what we're just going to call a prayer room, 12 hours long. It'll start at 6 a.m. in the new office space behind us here. Who knows whether it'll be finished with its fit out, but that doesn't matter. Our hope is that we just open up 12 hours of consecutive praying uh, and that we, the people of God, would find ourselves setting time aside, setting space aside to come in and to contend in prayer for the things that he would put in our heart. And so I just want to say get excited about that. That 12 hours will culminate with our gathering on a Sunday afternoon, and at 6 p.m., that'll be the 12 hours sort of done and dusted. Um, And for us, this is is what we're doing here. For us, this is almost a bit of an experiment, not to see whether it will work, but to see how we can use this space that God so graciously has offered us to create a prayer room in the heart of this city. And I just want to say, can you imagine that? Like, can you imagine this day and night pouring out of our hearts, opening up our mouths and singing praises and bringing petitions and prayers before our Father in heaven right here in the center of the city. We've got the seat of government across the road. We've got people on our doorstep who've never heard the name of Jesus, just wanting hope, wanting renewal, wanting life. And the only way we're going to get there is through prayer. And so next week, I would just say, you'll you'll get an email from me this week if you're a member of this church and it'll have a way by which some kind of mechanism with which you can sign up to participate in that prayer room. And 
I'd just say get excited. Put your name forward and join us in the city as we pray and it'll all be very clear as to how you can participate. But here's my encouragement. Participate. Let's see what God stirs in us, how he shapes us, how he molds us. And that would be just incredible. That leads me into my sermon quite helpfully, actually. I was reading a book this week, uh, actually by Mark Sayers. Uh, you know, just trying to get ready. If I meet him face to face, I'll be able to say, I've read your book, man, you know. And I was reading his new book, uh, Non-Anxious Presence. And it's really working. I'm very confident up here right now. And you can tell there's just this calm in my heart. But he talks about like, He uses the analogy of seeds to talk about this space that most people find themselves in whether they know it or not. And he says that seeds have this incredible power to start new life. But all they need is the right soil to germinate. All they need is something to activate them. And he tells this story, apparently, I didn't know this, apparently the oldest seed that was ever found was uh, from Masada in Israel and it was found in King Herod's temple. And they found it in early 2000s, and these researchers planted it. Now, what do you think happened next? Well, I'm preaching about it, so it's the, you know, the, the bets are off. It sprouted, germinated. Does anyone know the time span? 2,000 years, just chilling. And they find this seed. And they're like, hey, what do you do with the seed? We'll plant this thing. Seeds have this incredible ability to sprout new life. And when new life gets sprouted, it gives way to a tree. And when a tree gets fully grown, it gives life to so much more than it could have if it was ever just a seed. And Jesus uses this imagery to talk about what the church is doing in the world. Jesus uses this sort of catalytic, powerful metaphor to talk about what his kingdom is doing in the world. Bigger than new life, bigger than the churches across the road, Ann Street, Presbyterian, Cedar on a Hill up the road, brothers and sisters in Christ, but bigger than all of us. Bigger than the churches down the east coast of Australia, bigger than all Australian churches, Pentecostal, conservative, doesn't matter. What's God doing in the world? He is sprouting new life. You can, ride a, you can ride a motorbike and be part of the kingdom of God too, just for what it's worth. It's good, yeah. A lot of you just felt relieved and didn't realize a pastor needed to say that. He doesn't, so let's move on. And the question I want to ask us this afternoon is, let's just acknowledge from the outset, there is, there is new life waiting to sprout forward. What's going to activate it? Like there is this potential right here. Like just pause for a moment. This is going to get awkward, but just look to your right, look to your left. Like there's new life waiting to sprout forth from in our midst. And the question is, how do we get there? When I was growing up, my parents really loved buying lotto tickets. They just imagined, they were like, you know, if we win this, we, could you just imagine what would happen if we get the winnings of lotto? And I was, you know, I want to ask us the question this afternoon. Could you imagine the impact on this city? Could you imagine the impact on this church? And could you imagine the impact on our individual lives if we, and finish that sentence, 
What would you insert there? Would you insert get new office space? Would you insert have a morning service so it's a bit more rhythmic and comfortable for me and my clan? Would you insert, I don't know, air conditioning in this heritage-listed building? I would quietly insert that, just for what it's worth. <laughs> Could you imagine the impact if we prayed? I want to talk into self-reliance this afternoon. I want to look at this sixth clause in the prayer that Jesus taught us. And I want to begin just with this meditation, right, that... Isn't it fascinating? I said this in the first week when we opened this series. I'll say it again, that Jesus could have been asked a whole host of questions by his disciples, and sure, he was, and some of them were better than others and whatever, but when they came to him with this key question, it was one of the things into which he taught so profoundly. Jesus could have taught into a myriad of things. You know, we're a local church, we're a modern church, and we're interested in church planting. We're interested in preaching. I love sermons. I'll preach a sermon every four weeks, apparently, and like we're interested in these things. But what did Jesus teach his disciples? He taught him how to pray. And the profundity of this is that he could have taught on a whole host of things, but he taught them how to pray. And the more profound thing wasn't just that he taught them, but that they actually asked him. And the posture with which we've been inviting this entire church to come, come into this series with is this, to stand before Jesus with this humble posture and say, teach me, right? Like, I don't know. A few weeks ago, Mike was standing up here and he, he sort of just shared so humbly and vulnerably. He's like, look, I'm just not the best prayer in the world. And chatting with people after the service and in small groups, people were like, man, that actually really relieved me, right? And I just want to say it myself, like, I'm, I'm growing in this. I'm not there yet. I'm a pilgrim in progress. I'm never going to make it perfectly. And man, some days I sit down there and I've shared my story about feeling inclined to just open up silence and solitude with the Lord. And some days are way better than others. Other days I'm like, oh man, that sunset is really lovely. And I get distracted and, you know, I'm just not there yet. And none of us are there yet. But would we have this posture which says to Jesus, Lord, teach us. I don't know. You know something that I don't know. I want to learn from you. Would we have that posture, friends? Would that be our orientation? Would that be our heartbeat? Because prayer changes us and it changes the world. Prayer changes us and it changes the world. And we see that in this particular part of the Lord's Prayer that we're going to look at right now. I want to talk about two things. One, that we get to pray, Lord, deliver us. And two, we get to pray, Lord, lead us. And I'm going to switch those around because I got them mixed up in my head. Lead us not into temptation. I don't know what comes to mind when you hear that phrase, temptation. Uh, the story is told of a man who, he's trying to lose weight. And he's like, you know, I just get so tempted by almond croissants. At this moment, you're like, is this Alex? Could be. He's like, whenever I see an almond croissant, I just get tempted. And so I, I, I go into the shop, I go into the bakery, and I buy one. And lo and behold, as he's, as he's sharing this story, he actually has an, an almond croissant shop on the way to work, a patisserie. And so he's like, look, I'm going I'm to try and avoid temptation. I'm like, Lord, lead me not into temptation. I'm going to try and avoid temptation by, by not going past the patisserie on my way to work. And so he does this, and he sort of avoids temptation week one, week two, week three, and he's going really well. The kilos are dropping off. Jenny Craig would be proud as punch. And, and then he's, he says to himself, but what if God wants me to eat an armor croissant again? I've been good. It's been okay. Everything's going well. 
And so he's like, look, I'm going to drive past the patisserie again. I'm going to go back to my old way of driving to work. And he says, if there's a car spot out the front of the patisserie, that's a sign from God. And I'm going to park, walk in and get my croissant. So he drives, makes his way to work, goes the old route past the patisserie. He sees a car spot. He pulls in. He's like, this is a good day. Walks into the bakery, buys his almond croissant, gets to the third heaven. But here's the catch. He circled the block eight times. <laughs> I think like when we think about temptation, often we think it's like, it's this narrow, it's me and my moral life before God. And when we're asking God not to tempt us, we're saying, God, don't, don't put anything difficult in my life that would make me like slip up or sin or... This passage is actually incredibly ambiguous to translate. And it's wonderfully rich in what it offers us to think in terms of praying that God wouldn't lead us into X. Now, what do I mean? Um, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, it includes this sense in which we're asking God, yeah, please free me from temptation. These like small moral things that I find myself coming across. But it's also way bigger than that. And the reason it's that is, if you go to the next slide, Cass, um, the word that Jesus used is perasmos. Why don't you just say that with me, perasmos, go for it. First lesson Greek, well done, this is great. Feeling really encouraged. Perasmos is used multiple times in the New Testament, and almost always it's not translated temptation, it's translated test. Which is why, if you've got an old school translation of the Bible, it'll say something like, lead us not into the time of trial, Lead us not into the great test. And this raises a question around exactly what Jesus means when he uses the phrase perasmos, when he uses the phrase test. Now, if you think just in terms of English experience and our normal modern day life, there's three kinds of tests that you can find yourself in. There's negative tests, there's positive tests, and there's neutral tests. Negative tests are things like a law court trial or an exam. You're put there and someone's trying to grade you and you feel nervous, and it's not nice, and you're like, what will the result be? I didn't study. It's negative. It's not a good test. That's one kind of test. There's other kinds of tests, like a neutral test. For example, if you're doing a clinical trial, and you're using data to try and map, or doing an experiment in a laboratory to try and find out where a particular substance is, or what it does, or those kinds of things. That's a neutral test. And then there's more positive tests, the kind of tests that gym junkies do at the gym. Here's the question when you're at the gym. How heavy can I lift, you know? That's a positive test because you're convinced if you're at the gym that you can probably lift more than the rest and that it's going to go well with you and you get to show yourself your strength. Negative, positive, and neutral. And in the Bible, the dominant kind of test that the people of God find themselves in are negative and positive. But you tell the character of the test not by the thing that you're sitting in, the parameters or the metrics or the matrix or the criteria, but by the character of the agent who gave the test. That's how you tell whether it's positive or negative. And the reason we know this is because tests actually fill the Bible. And it's so unfortunate that our English word test has so much negative baggage because the tests that we find in the scriptures are beautiful and they're opportunities for the people of God to spiritually grow. Or in other words, to use the metaphor that we started with, to be activated as the seeds that God wants to bring new life out of. It happened with Adam and Eve. They find themselves in a garden and God puts before them the tree of life or the tree of knowledge of good and evil and he says, 
choose one, choose the tree of life. And what did they do? They chose the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They failed the test. So then he, he picks another person. He goes from this global Adam and Eve, the mother and father of humanity, and he goes to this local family, Abraham. And he says, Abraham, leave your country. Go to the place that you don't see, but because you see me, you'll trust to move there. And Abraham chooses yes, he passes the test. He proves to himself and to God that he's worth his salt, that he is faithful, that he's loyal, that he is a just covenant partner. What happens next? Abraham fails. He fails the test. He lies about his wife being his sister to Egypt. He abuses his wife's slave so that he might create an heir for himself, manufacture what God himself was going to do because of his own power. He fails the test. And all throughout the story of the Bible, you've got people being given tests, finding themselves in a crossroads, perhaps not put there by God, but definitely used by God, so they would have an opportunity to say yes to him, reveal to themselves who they are, and be trusted with more for the next moment. That's the story of the Bible, and that's the kind of test, the positive tests. And we know this to be the case because Peter, the apostle, and James, the brother of Jesus, talked about it in the New Testament. They talked about us having desires within us that themselves are bent, off shape, off skew, off kilter, that themselves give rise to temptations and tests which are not from God, can be manipulated by the evil one. But then that in that space, God meets us and by his spirit and with his power frees us to choose the right thing. But here's the cool thing about tests in the Bible, that the Bible works with the assumption that we will always fail the tests, that in fact all of us have failed the ultimate test, the test to choose God for himself, not us for ourselves. And so one person passed the test where we never could. And what began in the beginning of the story with two trees culminated in the middle of the story with one tree, two beams, horizontal and vertical. And Jesus Christ lived the life we never could, died the death we all deserve to pass the ultimate test. So that now the tests that the people of God find themselves in, they're not ultimate tests. They're not ones that question our salvation. They're not ones that make us think that God's this wicked tempter just trying to get us out of his group. They're invitations for growth. They're the kinds of tests. Which means, that sounds strange, right? Because the, the invitation is to pray not for those kinds of tests. If we go to the next slide. What's Jesus inviting us to ask there for? And this is the thing. The kind of test that Jesus is inviting us to ask for here, to be removed from, to be protected from, is the test that would ultimately rock us off kilter and unhinge us from God. If we go to the next slide, you'll see a definition there. Um, and this, this became clear to me when I was reading James. Let me just read to you James 1. This is a fascinating passage. You just think, you know, James is the brother of Jesus. He grew up next to Jesus. He saw Jesus. And just imagine what James got to learn from the life of Jesus. And he's writing this, this letter to some scattered churches in the first century towards the back end of his life. And it's quite mature thought. He's had time to reflect and think about, well, what is, you know, what does God do? Does God te te tempt us and test us like a wicked tempter? And James's conclusion is this, that if we find ourselves in a space where we feel genuinely concerned about whether we should choose God or something else and it has this big significance in our lives, he would say that's not from God. 
That's just got nothing to do with the person of God because God's not a wicked tempter. He's a compassionate deliverer. And let me just read James 1, verse 13 to 17. He says it like this. He says, when tempted or tested, same word, perasmos, no one should say, God is testing me. For God, God cannot be te- tested by evil, nor does he test anyone. But each person is tested when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. What's he saying? He's saying we find ourselves in a myriad of tests, and there's two main ones in the positive and negative sense. One is a test given to us by the evil one. The kind of thing that says, choose not life, choose death. Choose evil. Choose to give in to that wicked temptation. Choose to give yourself over to sin. But that is not from God. The only reason it's tempting is because we find within ourselves a nature that's bent that way. In other words, James pulls zero punches, right? Like you read this and it's pretty offensive. Like it sucks to read this. But then you look at your life and I look at mine. I'm like, I think, I think he's onto something there. And he's saying God's not the author of evil. God is not the genesis maker, fabricator, manufacturer of anything bad in the world. He's not the one that tilted your desires away from himself. That's actually the presence of the evil one in the world, tempting and testing and pervading you. And the only reason we would ever give in to that is not because God is testing us, but because we ourselves find this desire within us that runs forward and after. And so if we go back to the next slide, John Calvin, he put it like this so wonderfully. He said, God tries in one way, Satan in another. Satan tempts that he may destroy, condemn, confound, and cast down, but God, he proves his own children and establishes their strength and courage. And so what am I talking about here? I'm talking about when Jesus invites his disciples to pray this prayer, here's what he's doing. It's this orientation which says to God, God, I am frail. I am finite. I am I'm sinful. Please, please never put me in a situation. Never let me be put in a situation that would rid me of you, make me walk away from you. You're the giver of life, and I want you always and forever. Be at the center of my life. Would you never let me be put in that kind of situation? Now, when I realized this, and I got to this definition of perasmos, this definition of testing, this prayer that Jesus invites us. You know what I felt? Offended and also a bit nervous, right? Like, you know what this makes you wrestle with? Freedom. Who you're becoming and who you are. And as a pastor, that's a dangerous thing to say. Because people might walk out of here thinking, oh, Flip, does that mean that like, my eternal salvation's in question? Does that mean that like, I can actually fall off the bandwagon? And there's two things to say here. One, this is an internal Christian debate upon which two sides sort of descend in answering what it means to persevere as a Christian. And I won't go into that now. But two, let me speak into the experience we have of free will as a pastor. What do you choose? Like daily. Like when you're at a fork in the road, the language of James is quite beautiful. He's not saying there's this one-time test and if you pass or fail, it's doom, or, it's, you know, doom and gloom or life eternal. He's saying there's tests every day. 
And what you say yes to makes it easy to say yes to that kind of thing in the future and yes to that kind of thing in the future again. And if you choose death, it gives rise to death. But if you choose life, can you imagine? The seed which each of us have gets activated by prayer and protected by the Holy Spirit as we pursue the life that the Lord's Prayer has for us. It's this sense in which God says, what will you choose? Now, the reason I got offended at this, and my time's running a lot more short than I thought it would, but let me just zoom in here for a second. This freaked me out because it made me realize this, that when I come to this prayer, I come as a modern person who feels like he has all of his stuff together, who feels like he's got a good rhythm of life, he's trying to have a decent work-life balance and you know, money in the bank and things feel okay and, and that's great. And so when you read this prayer and it's got this sort of sense in which there's actually a meaningful free choice that I have in this life, that makes me feel uncomfortable. And it makes me feel like, do I, actually, do I actually need God to answer this prayer? And I think this is the point. I was praying through the exact thing that I thought God might want to say to us from this passage, and I think the reason this passage is so confronting is because it it confronts our self-confidence. See, I know in my life, I find it so easy not to pray these kinds of prayers because I feel like I've insulated myself from a bunch of temptations in life, like I've got my whole act together, like I can sort it out on my own, like I'm sort of the captain of my own ship and everything's going to be okay and I don't need to worry about who I'm becoming because it's all good, I'm all sweet. And then someone comes into my life and they say, Alex, I think you're living life in your own strength. And I hate that. Like, I really hate that because it's unquantifiable. Like, has anyone ever said to you, I hope this is making sense. Just journey with me for a second here. Has anyone ever said to you, like, I think you're living life in your own strength? And I'm just like, I don't know what you mean. Right? Like, what do you, what do you mean? And I was praying, I was like, There's something to this, because Paul says we should boast in our weakness. But then in a modern church, we've got all these ideas about what it means to steward our resources and grow as an institution, and there's good things there too. And so how do I be both excellent, but also like not rely on my own strength? It's actually really hard to quantify. I actually think I've got a really easy question that we can ask ourselves in thinking through this for our, our lives. Do you pray? You can't quantify life in your own strength. It's like, does that mean I should not pursue excellence and therefore not talk about it? Like, is that? No. no we should steward stuff. We should be great. We, the church should be one of the most flourishing organizations in the world. We've got every reason to be, right? So what does it mean? Like, should I be shameful that I'm doing okay? <laughs> I think it just means we should pray. When you pray... You see the hand of God. When you pray, you're thankful for the move of God. When you pray, you're actually assuming this sense in which I'm a finite creature, I'm tempted, I'm tested, I need help. And the reason this passage is so hard to confront and so difficult to deal with is because you can only read it when you say that. Like you can't ask God for help to be not tempted when you just are like, I'm all good. I'm sweet. And it means that Jesus, as he finishes this prayer, he reminds us that the way that we got into the Christian life is the way that the Christian life proceeds. 
that we came in not clinging to any good that we've done, that we came in with no sense of boast. We came in weak. And Jesus would remind his disciples that you cannot pray the Lord's Prayer without being weak. You cannot pray the Lord's Prayer without realizing that, man, I am tempted. Like, I am one step away from a big, bad move in life, you know? And the reason that church pastors have fallen within evangelicalism and the reason that people get off kilter is because they don't reckon with this enough. We're broken. We're finite. We are, in the words of Jesus, tested and tempted. And it's scary. The beautiful truth is that amidst that testing and tempting, Jesus said he'll never lose any one of his disciples. That they know his voice. That they, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, will persevere. But that in no way diminishes or takes away from this opportunity we've got for life and choosing life. And so we need to be a people who pray, deliver us. Like, do you feel that right now? And if you don't, meditate on your heart. Ask God to show you what is in you that will allow you to see that the fruit and power of this kind of prayer deliver us from evil. Second, sorry, lead us not into temptation. Second, deliver us from evil. There's two ways to translate this, and I hesitate to say that, but it's just really important. One is deliver us from the evil one, and this comes out when you say, hey, let's pray this Lord's Prayer together, and some in the church are like, evil one, and others are like, evil, and it's like, what the heck? Evil one, or evil. And the Eastern Church in history has opted for the evil one, sort of um, more broadly, and the Western Church more broadly has opted for evil. And so that's how it sort of splits right down the middle. And um, actually, the, the Greek, it can go either way. And so the, you answer the question of how to translate this, not by the text right there, but actually by the larger witness of the New Testament. And the New Testament actually just says that, man, we should pray for both, <laughs> right? So if you find yourself with a translation, this is just me deconstructing some stuff so it's helpful, right? If you find yourself with a translation, it's like evil one or evil, it's like, I don't know what to pray for. Pray for both. It's going to be okay. We pray for both. And the reason we especially know this is because the Rasmos, the test that Jesus invites his followers to pray against, he himself went through at the beginning of every single gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Sorry, not John, my bad. But... This is what we pray for protection from the evil one. And this, if the first point challenges and confronts our self-reliance, this point challenges and confronts our secular imagination and superstitious Christianity. What do I mean? I mean that the Christian story works with this assumption that there's more to the world than meets the eye. That there is a God in heaven and that there are actually divine beings in this world, within the heavens and the earth. And some are given to good, and some, not so much. Some are the very presence and power of evil, animating, being the background hum behind all systematic injustice, all brokenness in the world, and all temptation that individuals feel. Now, we live in a secular Western democracy, which means this, that basically we think humans are pretty awesome, so let's treat them all equally, and God's not real, so let's chart our own course. And so into this culture, we find ourselves swimming. And if you find yourself swimming in this kind of culture, you read a passage like this, and you're like, I find it really hard to imagine what Jesus is talking about. 
because he seems to suggest that there's these like things in the universe that I've got no framework for, and the culture I swim in is forming me not to really be able to intellectually affirm. So it confronts our secular culture, but it also confronts superstitious Christians. Have you ever heard anyone say something like, oh yeah, the devil made me do it? Right, like picture the guy at the start of my message, the guy who's just like tempted by almond croissants. Maybe it's not God who's the agent who's tempting him, maybe it's like the devil, which like this whole host of theological problems saying that <laughs> the devil would tempt us with almond croissants. That's definitely a God temptation, you know what I mean? Like it's not, it's not from the father of lies. But, and it just makes you wonder, like what world are we in? Like what space do we find ourselves in? And who wins? Like, you know, we're in this present moment and the illustration that I find really helpful for this in unpacking the world we find ourselves in is, is just this. Most of us will know, and I've used this before, but on June 6, 1944, the Allied forces rolled into the northern beaches of France and they overtook the, the Axis powers. And most people will call this D-Day. It was the time when the war was won. But they didn't roll into Berlin with victory flags on top of their tanks until VE Day, which was 336 days later, May 8th, 1945. And here's the question. When was the war won? They celebrated in 1945, but they claimed to have this huge victory on 1944. Most historians would say they won in 1944 that the beaches, the storming of the beaches of Normandy was the decisive battle which secured the outcome, that D-Day gave way to V-E Day. But that didn't mean that there wasn't more work to do. And that didn't mean that there wasn't a skirmish to be had. And that didn't mean that there weren't things that needed to be flooded out of the, of the European bloc. And so D-Day was always the ultimate hope. And in the Christian story, we find ourselves as the people of God between two similar poles, that on the cross of Jesus and in the resurrection of Christ, we have the decisive battle which guarantees the hope that we have. But we find ourselves between two things, the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus. And in that space, there's a skirmish. The prince of the power of the air, he's been defeated. Satan no longer has a grip on our lives. We can actually flee his temptation and run away from the lies and the accusations and the confounding of the one who would seek to steal, kill, and destroy. We actually have that power. It's called the Holy Spirit. And we access it in prayer and communion and alongside the people of God. But don't be fooled. There's still a battle happening. Which is why Paul doesn't say in Ephesians 6, he doesn't say, like, battle really hard. And he doesn't say, there's nothing for you to do. He says, stand. Like, do you feel that beautiful bulking word. <laughs> Stand. Stand in the decisive battle that Jesus won, awaiting the day that he comes to make all things new. There will be a day where there will be no temptation. There will be a day when there's no longer the presence of evil in this world, no longer sickness, suffering, death, or the power of evil because God's promise is that he'll do away with it, which raises this question. What's Jesus inviting us to do here? Deliver us from evil. I don't know about you, but when I find myself looking at the evil in the world, I get so overwhelmed on two scores. One, it's hard to reckon with, and two, it's hard to feel like I can do anything about it. And the point of prayer that Jesus gives people is that actually the greatest thing we can do is pray. Prayer is our resistance. Prayer is what we do. 
I had a quote from Fleming Rutledge. I just want to skip it if that's okay, Cass. But when you think about what it looks like to stare evil in the face, systematic injustice, you think of economy and class and social differences that literally find themselves right at the front of this door on the street in our midst. You look at the way that the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. You look at the way that people find themselves disadvantaged even while they're trying to access government services. You look at the way that, man, like, if you just walk down Queen Street Mall, you'll see a myriad of things which make you think, oh, man, where's God? What's God doing? And where are the people of God? What are they doing? It's overwhelming. Evil's real. And it finds itself in our midst. And here's the invitation of Jesus. The best thing you can do, the fundamental thing that the people of God do, the most powerful thing that we're invited to do, is pray. Now when I hear that, I've got two reactions. One is, and this is reactions I'm preempting, sorry. One is, that's really exciting. And the other is, really? And the invitation of this series is just to say, try it out. <laughs> See what God would do, you know? In my life, I've been disappointed with prayer because I haven't tried it. Does anyone else feel that? I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, like, the Christian story has been found wanting, not because it's been tested and tried, but because it hasn't been tested and tried. And sometimes I struggle with prayer because I'm like, oh, I actually just don't do it. And so when I hear the preacher say, the way we fight, the work that we do, it's in prayer, I'm like, that's really hard to believe. And I'll just gently nudge back and say, it might be because you don't do it. And that's a hard word. But man, is that a powerful invitation. We open this series by asking the question and putting this vision across our face of saying, man, could you imagine if we would look back at June 2022 and say, I never knew how to pray before then. But something happened that year, at that time, because of which now I have a flourishing prayer life. I commune with God daily, and I feel comfortable in corporate prayer, in private prayer, in silence and solitude, in contending, in interceding, in giving thanks, in praying for my brothers and sisters. I feel not just comfortable, but inspired. I feel at home in the lap of my heavenly Father by the Spirit. I feel good about prayer. I know the power of prayer. I feel the longing of prayer. My desire for God is stoked and stirred and like the embers of a fire, it's just pulsating, pulsating, pulsating. That was the vision we put across our church and I asked this question, would that be you? And so as the band comes up behind me, there's just one question I wanna ask and it's this, if you want to grow in prayer, if you want to be the kind of person in whom the Lord's prayer takes shape because you apprentice to its contours and become the kind of person who answers the prayer itself with their life, but more than that, actually grow in your ability to talk to your Heavenly Father. Would you be that person? Would we be that church? Would we grow as that people? It's so the invitation I want to put on us this afternoon is if you want to grow in prayer, and we'll ask it again, We'll invite it again. If you want to grow in prayer, I'll just actually just invite you to stand as the band begins to play.
And so to do that, let me just ask, could everyone just close their eyes? And as I share this, this is like, there's zero condemnation here, because you've just heard me say, I really struggle in prayer sometimes. You're not alone, you're in very good company. But if you're done with like not communing with your heavenly father, if you're done with maybe just reading the Bible and ticking that off really well, but there's no sense of growth in this fundamental part of the Christian life, this beautiful invitation, I would just ask you, why don't you stand? Why don't you stand to your feet? Thank you so much. And the beautiful thing about being the church of Jesus Christ is that as we now find ourselves standing, I actually want to invite you, look around again. Open your eyes and just take a look around. And I think one of the funny things that happens with church life is we come to church thinking that the people alongside us are the ones who least expect us to want to make progress in the Christian life. Does everyone feel that? It's like, oh, I don't want to step out boldly. I don't want to raise my hands in worship. I don't want to give myself over to showing the preacher or my brothers and sisters beside me that I want to grow in prayer because they don't want me to. Or at least that's the assumption that that sort of thought trend works with. And I just want to say, look around. Like, let's be unselfconscious. Let's be unhindered. There are people standing alongside you right now that are saying, I want to grow in this. We want to grow in this. Life would be pretty boring without prayer, actually. We should feel every confidence as the people of God that if we rock up to church every Sunday and say, I want to grow in prayer, that you will not be a unique person in this gathering. And so with that, I want to pray for us. And as I pray, I just encourage you, maybe you want to open your hands. Something I love doing in seeking God is actually just lifting my hands. And I love just this this imagery of the act of surrender. And it's so liberating. It's so freeing. Just to be unselfconscious. Just to not care. Just to realize that I'm in good company. That we want the same thing. And so if that's you, I just encourage you, open your hands, raise them above your head if you'd like to. Just in this act of surrender. And so Father, we pray right now. Make us a praying church. Make us a people that commune with our Heavenly Father. Help us be a people who posture ourselves rightly as disciples who, Lord, we don't, under, we don't overestimate ourselves. We don't think highly of ourselves, too highly. We know you love us, but we need your help. We need your kingdom to come, your will to be done in our hearts, Lord. And so, Father, as we lift our voices to you now, would you inhabit the praises of your people? Would you help us sing and give you our hearts, captivate our imaginations right now, Heavenly Father, with the words that we sing, the truth we profess? For it's in Jesus' name that we pray.